The Neurodivergent Woman podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Libok, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. Today's guest is Adina Levy. Adina is an AudiHDer, speech therapist, professional educator, and podcaster. She runs Play Learn Chat, and her podcast is called the Exploring Neurodiversity Podcast. Adina loves intertwining her personal and clinical experiences with the lived experiences and perspectives of other neurodivergent people. She is dedicated to helping professionals and families to better understand the unique interests, individual strengths, and support needs of neurodivergent children. Welcome, Adina. We're so happy to have you here today on the podcast with us. We're really excited because we wanted to cover speech and language for a while. Um, so, yeah, we'd love to hear from you, uh, you know, telling us what is a speech pathologist. And you have mentioned that you prefer to use a different term for yourself. So, can you tell us a little bit about that and how how does a speech pathologist work generally with neurodivergent people? Yes, thank you so much. And I'm super, super excited to be here. Um, I, yeah, I did share earlier that I love using the term speech therapist for myself. In fact, if I could change it further, I'd go something like communication, interaction and feeding therapist. But, you know, people still need to recognise a term. And I think to the general public, speech therapist is pretty recognisable. The fancy term, speech pathologist, or let's say technical term here in Australia, we say speech language pathologist. That's the degree I did, speech language pathology. It's pretty pathologizing. You know, that's, there's that word. It's saying here are people with big problems and we're going to fix you. And I just don't like that. It's never reflected how I've worked or how I believe, uh, you know, our, our role should be. So I love the term therapist. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I can I can see like if in your title is the word like pathologize, <laughs> it's, um, it's definitely like uh, sending a, it's not even a subtle message, I guess. It's quite a upfront message with psychologists and stuff like that. Imagine if, you know, our title was mental health pathologist. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that it's such a good point. Cause I, obviously when you say it, it is, it makes a hundred percent sense. And is so obvious. I've never thought about that before. I've been like, oh yeah, speech pathologist, but never even unpacked that the word 
pathology is in the job title, which is strange because you don't see that in any other allied health job titles. So yeah, that makes so much sense. I'm going to start calling speech. I'm going to start saying speech therapist from now on. (laughs) I love it. And the whole point, you know, having this conversation, I think is really helpful for so many people. So yes, on paper, I'm a speech pathologist, sure. But, and it's actually labeled differently all around the world. I think in New Zealand, it's speech language therapist. That is the technical term. And that's nice because I mean, New Zealanders are just friendly. So that's lovely. Um, yeah, so I think to me, just it's the focus on the therapy, the support, the connection, the, you know, the positive side of things that reflects how my brain works. So can you tell us how do speech therapists uh, generally work with neurodivergent people? It varies a lot, <laughs> probably like in a lot of our professions, more and more people are doing good practice. And what that looks like is neurodiversity affirming support. We work a lot with kids, but also with adults. I think it's more commonly known that speech therapists do support children. Ideally, if we're working with little kids or kids of any age, we're really also working with the caregivers, the parents, the carers, uh, teachers, educators, therapy teams. We are working to support communication needs. We're working to support feeding as well, and that's something we can talk about too. Um, yeah, speech therapists have a big role in supporting eating and feeding challenges, which is pretty common in autistic people and neurodivergent people. Yeah, I think it would be really interesting for people to hear actually what are all the different areas that a speech therapist can work with or cover because oftentimes when I've recommended um, speech therapy to clients a lot of the time they're surprised because I think and and I'm so interested to hear your take on this Adina but I think from a lot of clients I see there's the perception that unless there's something actually wrong with your motoric speech like your articulation and your ability to produce language and words then you wouldn't benefit from a speech therapist. So I'd love if you could just share with people what actually are all the different domains that speech therapy covers? Yeah, it's a great question because I think I get very, like any of us, we get into our world and our discipline and we know it. So it's pretty obvious, isn't it? But it's not. (laughs) Um, And that's why I said earlier, I'd love to rebrand as communication, interaction and feeding therapists. I think that covers a lot more depth about what we do. So a big part of what I teach people and I teach therapists, I teach parents this, is communication is about so much more than the speech. And because we have speech in our title, that itself is an ableist assumption that we're only about talking and speaking, which is really not the point. And especially when working with autistic and neurodivergent people, we absolutely have to be looking at supporting beyond mouth words or speech that actually comes out of the mouth. So other areas that we work in, and a lot of the time we're supporting people with language, so actually expressing themselves in any way but sharing messages with the world, receptive language, which is all about understanding, so being able to interpret the messages coming into you, again, not just through what you're hearing but what you're reading, what you're seeing around you, you know, body language or, you know, all the ways that we take in information. Um, so that all of that is communication. And then there's the specific ways we communicate, which we can support as well. So sure, we work on lisps, we work on stuttering, um, like fluency. Not that I do that anymore, but I've, yeah, I've moved very much towards the sort of advocacy communication space. Um, but 
all of the realm of what speech pathologists or speech therapists can do is um, is pretty broad. And voice, voice therapy is another area, uh, which is probably something I need to support myself because when I present all day, I end up losing my voice even though I know what to do. There's another area we work in and feeding therapy too, as I mentioned. Mm. Exactly as you say, Adina, you know, we get in our little disciplines and in our silos and we know what these things mean. And so it's really, we often forget that these aren't lay terms. You know, they aren't things that, what, like, why would the general public know, you know, what these very specific nuanced terms mean? And something that I'm really hoping you can define um, or explain for our audience is, what is pragmatic communication? Because so many neurodivergent clients get referred for support with pragmatic communication. And it's like, well, what the hell is that? <laughs> I love that question, Michelle. Thank you. It's, uh, yeah, you're hitting on a real special interest of mine. So pragmatic communication is basically how language is used. So we might talk about the way that language is formed. So, you know, the words that we use and the grammar that we use and the way that we express it, that's, you know, potentially speech or using other ways, maybe sign or uh, visuals or AAC. And then pragmatics is really how does it come across in a social context and how are we connecting all of the ways that we communicate with using them in functional, socially connective ways where it gets really complex and I've got like hours of webinars and information about this and you know podcast episodes and all kinds of things because it's a really complex issue but we here the three of us may know about the concept of the double empathy problem and I'll summarize that in a nutshell which is it's a concept coined by uh, Dr Damien Milton who's an autistic uh, academic about 12 13 years ago and this idea talks about traditionally autistic people specifically were told and still are being told that the way we communicate pragmatically and connect with others socially is wrong and needs therapy and needs to be fixed and changed to look more like the communication of neurotypical non-autistic communicators. What we now know, not all of us, but we're learning and we're putting the word out there and educating others is that autistic communication can be just fine and autistic people often can communicate just fine with other autistic people. For example, for me, uh, my kind of the way that my autistic communication can come out is info dumping, so just like rambling about a topic um, that really lights me up and also things like interrupting for me. It also might be my little ADHD side. Uh, interruptions for me is something that I don't see as rude and I don't perceive other people interrupting usually as a rudeness, but culturally that can be seen as a rudeness. Uh, for me, it's about excitement and sharing joy and sharing interest. However, like, for example, in a podcast, interruptions might mean the audio quality goes down a bit. So, you know, we've got ways around this. So the double empathy problem is something that really informs how we should be doing social supports and pragmatic communication supports, basically looking at the idea that autistic communication and neurodivergent communication patterns and preferences might be different but not wrong. I think that's a fantastic explanation. And I guess leads nicely into our next question, which we've already started touching on, but how can speech therapists work with neurodivergent people in an affirming way, as opposed to, you know, the medicalized model, which as we've said, is very much in the title. Yes. Speech pathologist identifying what's the pathology and how do we fix it versus what is it that you do? It takes a lot of humility, I think, to 
change for any any of us therapists. You know, I think we've been taught in uni. Look, honestly, most of the unis are still not teaching great stuff. There's some glimmers of hope. There are some great autistic professors. There's there's change happening. But to be an affirming speech therapist, you need to be ready to say, I don't know it all. I'll never know it all. I'm listening. I'm ready to shift. I was wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a huge thing that we have to all be doing. And I'm doing it constantly. I keep telling people, you know, when I'm running a webinar or training, what I teach you now might be different to what I teach you in six months. And I'm teaching you the best that I know right now. And it's different to what I did two years ago. But but here we are. So that, you know, we have to start with that position. It's it's okay to have been wrong in the past, we did the best with what we knew, but let's get ready to shift. And I think the biggest message I want to shout from the rooftops to speech therapists and to everyone, but especially to speechies, is that all communication is valid and really deeply challenging the ways that oralism, as in prioritising speech over other ways of communicating, how that shows up in our work. Very often parents come to us saying, I just want him to talk. I mean, I ask therapists, you know, when we're running webinars and so on to put your hand up if you've heard that and like every hand shoots up. It's just, it's really common. And our world prioritizes speech over non-speech. So it's pretty common as an assumption, but it's simply not appropriate for some people as a goal. And so really working to dismantle our own assumptions about prioritizing speech. And I'm not going to say I'm ever going to be there. I'm a person who speaks quite a lot and pretty well, generally, um, until, you know, after we do a podcast recording, I'm going to be non-speaking for a little while. And I could if I absolutely have to, but it, it becomes super, super hard for me. So that's something we'll probably talk about later is sort of how this shows up in my own life. But really recognizing that speech is not the only way of communicating. It is not the be all and end all. And for some, it's simply not an appropriate goal. And communication, underline, 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 that is the goal. That's got to be the big goal. Yeah, I think that's such a good point about differentiating different types of communication and that all communication is valid. And I think um, something that I feel like a lot of people get caught in, lay people and therapists and professionals as well, absolutely. And that's about kind of checking ourselves here and understanding the different um, paths of cognitive development of different neurotypes is that if you've got a neurotypical kid and they have what we would call delayed language, right? They're not at that kind of neurotypical, typically developing language markers at various ages. Oftentimes, particularly if it's what we would call severely delayed, right? If you've got, say, a five-year-old who's not speaking at all, and that five-year-old is neurotypical, oftentimes that language development is on par with their overall cognitive development. So that might actually be a good indication that that five-year-old is also cognitively delayed or maybe has an intellectual disability or maybe has global developmental delay or one of these things. Whereas what's interesting, and I'd love to hear your take on this, Adina, autistic cognitive development actually takes a different path. So you could have an autistic kiddo who's five and not speaking, but has average or typical cognitive development. So they they don't have an intellectual disability. They're not speaking for a different reason. And I'd love to hear, Adina, your thoughts on what are some of the different reasons why an autistic kid might have um, or might be non-speaking much later than would be expected for a neurotypical kid? It's such a good question and obviously comes with many caveats. There's many different ways that it presents um, that, you know, any one person's 
communication abilities, not just changes from one person to the next, but within each person from moment to moment. One thing that is very commonly co-occurring with autism is dyspraxia, which is basically difficulty coordinating movements. And so we have what's called apraxia or childhood apraxia of speech for kids, uh, which can be one of the reasons that speech itself can be difficult, literally difficulty coordinating planning the physical movements needed for speech. That can be one reason and it's pretty common. There are many other reasons and often we don't know the reason why speech might be hard or not possible for somebody to use. Uh, But exactly as you said, Michelle, what's so important is that we're not assuming intelligence based on speech communication ability. There's a lot of assumption there and there's lots of accounts online of uh, different AAC users. So AAC being augmentative and alternative communication, which actually technically refers to anything that is not speech, but often AAC is used to refer to using a device often, you know, maybe an iPad or a special device where you tap buttons and it produces speech. So it's called a speech generating device. There can be people who use AAC like spelling. So they actually point at pictures or type to spell out their messages. There's all different ways that people communicate. And there's so many people out there to listen to slash to read who share their experiences as non-speaking autistic people who are sometimes, I'm not saying all, but sometimes very bright, you know, intelligent and have essentially been undermined their whole life. People have not assumed that they can think or do anything. There was a wonderful presentation recently that I watched, which was part of the Reframing Autism Online conference. And the person presenting is called Ido Kedar. And that's something I can share the link in uh, to his work and you can share that on. Um, And it was just this beautiful and clear, insightful explanation of how a non-speaking person was basically just really bored throughout school. You know, nobody challenged him. Nobody assumed he could do anything. We talk about the idea of needing to presume competence, but what happened throughout his life was people presumed incompetence and didn't think he could achieve, think, do anything of interest. And now he's written a book and it's fantastic. I haven't read the book, but I'm I'm really keen to. So basically we can't assume somebody's language level or even cognitive level. And I'd love to hear from the psychology side of things, how that works when communication is, you know, very apparently different from intelligence and from actual cognitive abilities. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I think we have to constantly remind ourselves of because similarly, and and Monique and I have talked before about um, reading being moralized, you know, in society, it's like people are assumed to be very intelligent if they can read very well and not very intelligent if they can't read very well. Whereas reading, you know, is just one ability amongst many. It doesn't necessarily make you smarter or less smarter than anyone else. And I think the next level to that, that we need to constantly be reminding ourselves and checking ourselves on is verbal communication. And part of being allied health professionals or MDs, medical professionals as well, teachers, educators, anyone working with, you know, diverse populations, which is essentially everyone, but really checking that assumption that the person in front of you who is not communicating verbally must not have anything to say or anything to communicate. Something that I would love to bring up too, Adina, is, you know, you mentioned before there are these different aspects of language and, and you know, producing speech 
And you were saying that sometimes for autistic people, there can be like difficulty with like making the sounds. When you think about everything that has to happen to be able to produce speech, there's a lot. I could imagine from what you were saying, you having to coordinate your breathing with like lots of different muscles going on in your throat and your vocal cords. And then you have to coordinate your tongue and then like your lips and, you know, lots of different things actually going together. And I think it's just good to recognize that, yeah, like producing speech may be more tiring or take a lot more effort for some people. And all of that is still only thinking at the physical level, which is very important. And as you pointed out, very complex. We can take it for granted if we're, if we find mouth words pretty easy. And then you have to layer in all the other things. So the actual language content, finding the word that you're trying to say, finding the best words, worrying about the judgment of the person that you're speaking to because your whole life you've been judged by other people overtly or covertly and working out, yeah, everything else. (laughs) Is it the right time to talk? (laughs) All of that. And it's very, very complicated. So, yeah, all of that is just just a little glimmer of why we need to make sure we're not prioritising speech over non-speech. It's, we just miss so much communication opportunity if that's what we're doing. Yeah, it's interesting because while I was doing my university degree, my undergrad and my master's in psychology, I worked part-time as a disability support worker. Um, And that actually was really useful in informing, I don't know, like my, I guess how I work with people as a psychologist. And I really think that like even in psychology, we don't we get taught about like neurodevelopmental disorders and all of that, but we don't get taught how to work with disability unless you go and work specifically in that area with that client load like after university. I found it so helpful working with people with lots of different types of disabilities, um, including intellectual disabilities, working with a lot of people who are autistic and were given the diagnosis of level three autism and are non-speaking or speak mainly in echolalia, like repeating phrases or words. And as part of my training as a disability support worker, we were encouraged to learn um, like back in the day, Makaton sign language. Every day going to work, I'd regularly be using sign language um, like every day with clients to communicate their needs um, and communicate with them and be observing the people I'm working with who are non-speaking or speak in echolalia. And like they, they hundred percent knew what was going on. It was so awesome to see their personalities and um, yeah, just like the different interactions people had. And I, I absolutely loved working with them. So I guess kind of going through that, I never really had those assumptions coming coming out of psychology and going into like being a general registered psychologist and then doing my master's and all of that. But I guess if you don't have that exposure and you're not around people with different types of disabilities, and that's that is not like normalized, I guess, because a lot of the time people with disabilities are segregated in society um, or like don't don't have a voice, um, whether they're speaking or non-speaking. 
you just don't, I guess, have that stuff influence your thoughts and your beliefs about things. And even now, like I will, I still work with a lot of clients with different disabilities and I get referrals because of having that experience. That's such an awesome reflection, Monique. And as you pointed out, using, well, there's two things I want to pick up on just to make sure that we at least mention them, which is the idea of using sign language. So uh, Makaton is what it used to be called here in the UK. It's still called Makaton, I believe. Um, Here we call it keyword sign, which is basically simplified sign language. So using gesture, even natural gesture to augment your message, no matter what, no no matter who you're talking to, it's always helpful. (laughs) It doesn't harm anyone. And these are sort of universal strategies whether you know if somebody's autistic or not or what communication ability they have or not, it's always helpful to add to the message, uh, you know, using gesture and speech. So that's something to explore more for listeners. Um, and you talked about echolalia as well. So we're hearing in, in our field of speech pathology, we're hearing more and more around gestalt language processing, which is not a new concept, but it's becoming more common that people know about it and we're looking into it and we're learning about it there's not a heap of research out but I want to at least mention it so that people can go and look into it more (laughs) it's basically talking about the idea that many autistic people probably most learn language in a different way and perhaps learn speech but not even necessarily speech uh, in a different way and gestalt is basically talking about the whole of the thing So rather than, this is the way I learn lyrics to a song. I'm very much a Gestalt language processor and Gestalt thinker now that I've learned about the concept. I can hum along a song. I can sing the whole thing, you know, if I'm familiar with it. I might have sung it for years. And if you ask me what it's about, I'll have no idea because I've never really thought about the actual words. You know, for me, I love language and I love words, but when it comes to the musicality, and for a lot of autistic people, it's the musicality of language. So some autistic people are not learning probably many are not learning language by putting one word together with another word like the word like putty and gold (laughs) and then learning to say gold putty that might be the way that neurotypical kids often learn language but an autistic kid might learn gold putty as a whole entire phrase and only later learn to break that down into the parts so if that's interesting to you, please go and seek more information about Gestalt language processing. Uh, and if you think that might be your child, please look into that more. It's a really interesting and emerging area of knowledge. Yeah, it is interesting about like the echolalia as well. I noticed when I worked with people, I actually found working with autistic clients, like as a support worker, the easiest to work with. I don't know, it just like worked with my brain. And just intuitively, I guess, like so hard to describe, but it just really kind of was for me, it was easy to understand them or like interpret um, like what they were trying to communicate or what their behavior was saying. And I would observe sensory seeking or like what was going on for them. And like, it was awesome. And because a lot of those clients would mainly communicate through echolalia or um, and, and like making repetitive noises, I would actually find that I would be coming home and then like having echolalia from their echolalia. It would just circulate around in my mind or I'd have to like repeat what they were saying. And even now, like my husband is also autistic and one of his cool things that he does is he knows all of these jingles from his childhood so from like um, the 70s and stuff like that. And he will know the exact tune 
the whole advertisement word for word perfect and he'll just randomly start. I think he, he knows about like 50 different jingles. Um, but, yeah, like we, if there's a catchy thing in the jingle um, or he comes up with an echolalia, we'll actually have whole conversations or interactions where we're repeating each other's like phrase or a sound that's like is really pleasing to produce and we'll just go back and forward like copying each other's echolalia and it's delightful it's such a nice such a good feeling I don't know and yeah I just feel like for anyone that's not autistic like they and they haven't had that felt experience it would look strange maybe from like an observer looking on, but it actually feels really good and is like very delightful to participate in. I love it. It's delightful to hear about it, Monique, like just thinking about those moments where you're sharing these messages. And I think what you described is, you know, echolalia is not just imitating sounds, end of story. It can be stimming, it can be communication, it can be connection, it can be so much more, and it, it is. And I think we need to make sure we're looking beyond oh, he's just using echolalia, he's just imitating, to noticing that that is something. <laughs> there's a message, there's a meaning, there's connection, seeking connection potentially. I just had so many jingles going through my head as you were doing that. I might spare the listeners. but <laughs> I mean, if you want to, like, sing us a jingle, you're, you're so welcome to. <laughs> I, was, I was recording my podcast episode earlier and I think I said uh, I was talking about the idea of allyship and advocacy. And trying to convince people who are not autistic to be good allies by calling out problems that you see out on social media, not just leaving it to autistic people to do all the advocacy. And I said, you might recognize this one. Um, if you see something, say something, which was, I think, a terrorism ad from the government. Yeah, from, from the 90s. I recall that. See something, say something. There. <laughs> that's a little moment of echolalia that's a gestalt you know that that's something and um you know it communicates a message but also there's a little bit more depth to it you know if you recognize it as well so again we could probably go on that one forever couldn't we look I mean I think those examples from both of you guys are so helpful for people and I love Adina your explanation there of gestalt language processing it's such a helpful way to think about it because again what I often try and do with clients coming through particularly after doing like cognitive assessments and neuropsych evaluations is really a lot of the psychoeducation around an autistic brain it's a different brain and so the process of learning in particular, this is relevant for academic learning as well, but even things like language, learning skills, memory processing, all of these things actually take a different path. And I think when we understand how these things are learnt in an autistic brain versus a neurotypical brain, it takes away so much of the stigma and it really helps people to understand why. I'm such a huge proponent of understanding the why. And so the gestalt language language processing, I think, is such a good point because it really explains a lot of differences between autistic and neurotypical communication, particularly when you think about things like, you know, a neurotypical person. So you're giving the example of gold putty, right? The neurotypical person learns the word gold and learns the word putty as individual units and then is able to kind of use those units differently like the gold chair right or you know the orange putty right like replacing and moving around whereas an autistic kid might have learned gold putty 
as the gestalt, as the concept. And now every putty is the gold putty because that's what putty is called. And so when we understand that, we can see it's different. It's just a different path to language processing. And this is why I think having neurodiversity affirming therapists in all different modalities is so important who understand the neurobiology behind what's driving these differences. Because if you have a kiddo who's autistic and you take them to a non-neurodiversity affirming speech therapist, they might be, you know, pushing that brick up a hill, trying to get that kid to learn in a neurotypical way. And it's just not, it's just not how their brain works. So that was such a good explanation, Adina. I I love that. I'm nerding out really hardcore right now. I love it. You've actually just sparked one more memory in my mind about a particular, it's a project I did in year three and I learned the Auslan alphabet and that was my passion project. We had the free reign as probably eight-year-olds to do a project on anything we wanted and I even got to do a video, which for the 90s was pretty, I don't know, I must have borrowed the school's giant video camera. Um, so that was really awesome to be able to find a topic. I don't know what sparked the topic in me, but something about communication has always been interesting to me. However, I learned the whole alphabet, but as a gestalt. So I can do the whole sequence of movements, almost like a dance, but it took me a whole different process later when I actually started learning some Auslan to break it back down to actually be able to go, oh, that's the letter P or, you know, whatever that letter might be that I'm searching for. So I just realized as you were talking, that's an example of me as a gestalt learner having to break it down after the fact. Thank you for that little spark. No worries. Monique, such a helpful point you were making there about when you were working with autistic clients and particularly clients who were non-speaking or who communicated differently to the neurotypical norm. And you as an autistic person found that very intuitive to interpret what they were communicating. And this goes back to and is a perfect example of different languages. Autistic and neurotypical people just speak different languages. And when we can get to a point where we realize it's the same as someone speaking French versus English, neither language is better or worse, they're just different, we can actually then take away so much of the pejorative connotations that come from being non-speaking. And as neurotypical people, rather than saying, oh, this person is speaking gibberish, actually be like, oh, they're speaking French. Maybe we should go ask another French speaker what they're saying and get that other French speaker to interpret and teach us how to know what they're saying and what they're communicating. So yeah, I thought that was a great example, Monique. Thank you. Yeah. I just think it's so good to kind of get this these perspectives out there and like introduce some of these ideas to people because it, it's things that people may have never thought about before. And like another thing that I think is good to bring up in the episode today is even just the idea that people should be like speaking all the time and be really, really verbal all the hours of the day when you're not asleep, because it's not really recognizing that for a lot of people for different reasons that actually producing speech 
takes energy. And for some people, it takes like less energy or less spoons. And for other people, it takes more energy and more spoons. For myself, like being autistic, usually language for me, I like it to have a purpose. I like there to be like a reason why I'm using my spoons to like communicate information or to build a relationship with somebody. Um, I like communication to be purposeful. Because, yeah, it takes energy. And I think a good perspective for people to have when they're working with children and adults is that, you know, it's actually a good idea uh, to build in non-speaking time, non-verbal time to actually prevent burnout. So, like, even within my family, like, my dad was a doctor and so he would see people all day long And then I remember most of my childhood, every evening after work, he would just be like watching TV and not talking to us, like not talking to anybody and reflecting on it. I'm like, oh, well, he had a job where he was talking all day long. And, you know, he's autistic, he's neurodivergent. And um, yeah, like he would have no spoons left to actually be wording and like verbally communicating at home after work. And like growing up, I've found a similar experience because I have a job that is very interactive and talking all day long. I really, yeah, prefer not to be verbal at home. And yeah, like I think I've mentioned it before on the podcast. I've gone away on holiday with my mum and my mum talks a lot because um, she's an ADHD. <laughs> We've been on holiday before, like for three weeks overseas. And um, after a holiday of sightseeing, I'd be exhausted. I'd be so burned out. And I would just want to um, like read my book or watch my, you know, favorite TV show. And I wouldn't even want to go out for dinner because I'd be like so tired. And then my mum in the hotel room would be constantly talking and like asking me questions. And this is before we knew that I was autistic. And then I get really grumpy and irritable and snap at her and be like, mom, stop talking. Like, I just want to watch my video. I just want to read my book. Leave me alone. And she, yeah, she got like her feelings hurt and she was offended by it. And then we've kind of um, learned that if we're going to travel together, I really need like alone time and time where I'm not engaging in conversation at nighttime, but I can do it during the day. And now, like after getting my diagnosis and she got her diagnosis, it's kind of like, oh, this makes sense. Whereas it wasn't a problem when I travel with my husband because he doesn't talk much. Like, <laughs> so we'd be saying, hang, on, hang day. on, he doesn't talk much. Are we talking about a different person? Well, different time of day. Yeah, different time of day. Like, unless it's about his interest, ballroom dancing, he doesn't actually talk that much, to be honest. Um, or like if he's not hanging out with his friends, if it's just us um alone at home, yeah, like often we're both having non-verbal time together. And that's why that makes we could actually sense. travel together without me getting drained. And then if he wanted to go out at night, he would go out for dinner with everyone else in the group and I would stay in the hotel room. Monique, there's something you said there that is so relatable and important, which is that idea of once you figured out yourself and what you needed, then you could start to ask for it. And then the other people around you could go, oh, you're not being rude and snappy. You just have needs. And it's just, this is so important. I think we'll come to that whole sort of diagnosis or identity revealing process, but it is so important to know yourself and accept your needs and then you can get more of what you need without the judgment that goes along with it. 
That's such an important story. I think that's also a really helpful point for parents of school-aged kids because oftentimes I hear, particularly, you know, from neurotypical parents, but even from other neurodivergent parents and other autistic parents who are doing this because they think that they should do it. And we've talked, we talk a lot about, you know, uh, neurodivergent families. Part of what contributes to burnout is trying to fit a neurotypical norm. But a lot of parents feel like when I pick my kid up from school, I have to ask them how their day was. And I want to hear all about like what happened and what was this and what was that. And a lot of autistic kids, exactly as you described your experience, Monique, with traveling with your mom, they have been verbal all day, particularly high masking autistic girls who have been trying to, you know, be quote unquote perfect all day, fit into the norm, have had their mask on the entire day. They get in the car and then their parents like, Hey, how was your day? And we get meltdown. And they're like, and then the parents like, I, I just asked how their day was. I don't understand why we're having such a big reaction. And this is again where identification of neurotype is so helpful because if you know that your daughter or even, you know, your son or your child is autistic, it's likely that at the end of the day, when they get in the car, they want silence. They want to put their headphones on, listen to their own stuff or, you know, retreat into their own world, whatever that looks like for that particular person. And it's not that you know, they're trying to be rude to you or that they hate speaking with you in particular. It's just the moment they get in the car after school is likely not the best moment to have a conversation with them. And knowing that, that knowledge is so powerful and can avoid so many meltdowns and kind of relationship ruptures as well. Michelle, that just comes back to the big idea is like how speech therapists or anyone can support kids in an affirming way is understanding what they need and not just trying to jam in your communication preferences. So as a parent, of course, you want to know what your child's done that day. But as you said, is that the best time or even the best way to have that discussion? No, probably not for so many kids, neurodivergent or not. And I think then just shifting the way that we practice as speech therapists, especially rather than just trying to change the child so that they will respond to the parent's questions, why don't we change the world around the child? Why don't we change the parents' expectations, the parents' awareness, the school? We can maybe put in place a communication book so that school can help the child bring home a visual diary of what has happened so the parent still gets that need met of knowing what the child got up to. Or, you know, a lot of us, if we've got kids in childcare, we're getting photos sent home and that can be a really helpful tool. So, you know, schools can do that and should be doing that too. That's so helpful. So let's, yeah, keeping the focus on not just changing the child's skills, I think maybe 10% of our job should be that. That's maybe controversial. <laughs> but I think the other 90% or maybe 75% uh, of our job should really be focusing on changing the world around the child to be most supportive. So what are common speech and language differences that neurodivergent people have? I want to start with uh, the common problem that society has, (laughs) which we've touched on already, which is assuming that neurotypical communication is the right way to communicate and underestimating other ways of communicating, whether that's on the pragmatic level, so how we actually communicate in a social capacity, 
uh, to interact with other people, how we put our information together, um, or whether that's, you know, the actual mechanism of communication. So, yeah, that kind of flips the question a little bit. But as we talked about, a lot of autistic people experience difficulty coordinating mouth movements, so physical speech can be difficult. And for many other reasons, uh, producing speech or even producing our, let's say, our most reliable way of communicating can be intermittent and patchy and can be impacted by so many other kinds of things, you know, energy, social capacity, physical health, mental health, so many other aspects can affect communication. So it can be variable. Um, there can be also really big differences between receptive and expressive communication skills. So receptive being what we understand, expressive being what we share. And that can be hard to assess. So I think there's a huge issue in our industry where so many of our assessment tools, particularly our standardised assessment tools, the ones that feel most safe and familiar are a really poor match for what we actually need to understand how an autistic or neurodivergent person is communicating. It's something I'd love to deep dive into later in the year and I hope I get the time to do that. Um, but I think there's just so... Yeah, I don't think we have great assessment tools, which mean that we're often ending up with not great goals. And what I hope to teach therapists is to be more more open-minded <laughs> and, and to really think critically about, you know, some, some tools I think in psychology as well, you have to sort of use them or they're, they're good enough, but then it's in the interpretation and how you go beyond that. That's how you work out whether you're actually supporting a neurodivergent person's real needs, their real communication needs, first trying to push ableist assumptions on them. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think the really tricky thing is exactly as you say, a lot of our tools are good enough, but what it really requires um, when you're working with neurodivergent people is a lot of knowledge and expertise in what might be driving a particular performance for a neurodivergent person. And what I think would be an incredible and super useful research project, if we've got any academics listening, is to actually do some normative testing in different neurodivergent populations on all of these different standardized measures so we can actually have a normative sample for autistic people, for ADHDers, so that we actually know, okay, is this typical for autistic development, for instance, or is this even within an autistic kind of normative sample, is this something, okay, you know, this is something that's falling above or below the mean or whatever the case might be. At the moment, we're comparing neurodivergent uh, individuals to a neurotypical normative sample, which, as we said, if you don't have the expertise in how to interpret that, it's not really giving you much useful information. So I would love to see research projects norming these tests on specific neurodivergent populations, kids and adults, because adults often get missed out in this as well. I love that, Michelle. It's so important and so missing and as you were speaking I was thinking as well about um the, the other ways that we do assessment that is much more holistic and looking at you know quality of life factors individual factors interview-based assessment all of that again I'm sure that appears in all of our professions and putting a lot more weight on that qualitative I always have to check I've said the right word yes <laughs> the qualitative information that we get from somebody rather than 
just the numbers and it's it's so complex and as you're speaking again I'm thinking I want to do this as a little project for myself this year but maybe there's a PhD in it and I'm not saying that's my PhD so I hope someone else is doing this um <laughs> sometimes I have to let go of an idea and say maybe that one's not for me calm down well it's like putting the the idea out in the zeitgeist you know I love that idea I'm, I'm uh, on a tangent now but I love that idea of um ideas essentially being almost sentient and they kind of find you and sometimes you're the one to bring that idea to life and sometimes you're not sometimes you're the one to flesh that idea out a little bit and then pass it on to someone else to bring to life I love that. I'm going to think about that more when I have too many ideas and yeah. one go. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. We did go on a bit of a tangent. And I think there's something else I want to acknowledge is uh, a difference. Let's say a really big communication difference between especially autistic and non-autistic communicators. Uh, one difference can be in terms of the literal understanding of language. So I, for one, really struggle with when, and, and many other autistic people do, when the words don't match the meaning. <laughs> so that shows up in sarcasm, in jokes, in teasing, in bullying, in all other kinds of ways. And I have learned to figure it out. I can often figure out what someone's intention is or their real meaning when they're using, say, sarcasm or joking or tricking. But it's a very cognitive process for me. It takes a lot of brain labor. It takes a lot of spoons for me to figure it out. And really um, kind of respond in what looks like, let's say, in inverted commas, the appropriate way so that I don't out myself as a very confused autistic person. <laughs> and that's something to really keep in mind. Again, it's not necessarily a deficit in, I'm saying deficit intentionally here, it's not a deficit in an autistic communicator's ability to understand sarcasm. Maybe it's a deficit in neurotypical somehow people needing to use sarcasm and how weird and confusing that is and can't we just say what we mean Adina, we've talked before on the podcast about some of the um, kind of underlying neurobiology driving differences in autistic versus neurotypical communication. I'd love to hear from you, though, a speech therapist, on why is it, from your perspective, that happens, that there is that kind of um, difference between the two communication styles, particularly when it comes to literal understanding versus metaphorical understanding, et cetera? That is such a fabulous question, Michelle, and it's really making me pause and think. I probably don't know enough about why, but I have a few ideas about why. And one of these things, and I'm going to talk in big generalities here, but some of the factors that are pretty common to autistic people are a sense of justice, a sense that things need to be right and just so. And so, for example, when we're communicating with someone else and we're hearing something that is a disconnect from the truth, so whether it's a lie or a trick or a joke, there can already be this internal turmoil, this sense of like, that's not right, and that can lead to some serious dysregulation, which then makes it even harder to respond in, again, inverted commas, the appropriate way. That's one aspect. There's so many other aspects. And I think just simply we have different ways of using language and understanding language and being able to put language together that might not be as 
well-developed as neurotypical people, unless language happens to be your special interest, which it sounds like for the three of us it probably is, and then it's probably very patchy. So I think we have very differing capacities across the day, across our lives, across different relationships to be able to fill in the blanks where our brains don't naturally gravitate to understanding the other person's intention, where we need to help ourselves understand the other person a little bit more. And one of the strategies that I try to share is the idea of just self-advocating by putting your hand up when you're a bit confused and just saying, can you just clarify, did you mean that or did you mean that? Or like, hey, I'm really confused. What did you actually mean? It can be really tricky sometimes to even recognize the need to do that. And again, gosh, there's more I could go down there. Uh, Again, there's probably a whole podcast we could go on this exact question, I think, Michelle. I think from my perspective, it comes down to like the purpose of communication. So like with the example I gave of like my mum talking in the hotel room and me being like, no, like stop talking. Um, it's, It's looking at for different people, like what is the function or the purpose of why they are communicating. So um, for me, like communication, it I prefer it to be direct and honest and like have a like a, a purpose for like my mom her communication and talking is more about her talking through what she's doing which is quite an ADHDR thing to do so like saying what she's doing as she's doing it reminding herself to do things and like sometimes people will ask questions that they already know the answer to but it's actually a form of trying to reach out and connect with you but for my communication style it's kind of like irritating because it's like but you're answering a question that you sorry you're asking a question that we all already know the answer to (laughs) it's like do you want me to like answer it or not and so because my mom and I have talked through our different communication styles and like the purpose behind the communication we now understand each other's communication But I think it's difficult if you're in a social setting where you don't have that scaffolding in the relationship already to be able to actually talk through those things. Monique, that experience that you shared of when someone asks a question, but you know that they know the answer. So many of our kids in speech therapy sessions, for example, certainly ones I've run in the past where we can sometimes default to testing questions, even just kids that we hang out with, whether they're ours or other people's. Grown-ups love to get into testing questions like, what's this? Can you point to the, and that experience, it's like the, the kids of the world, not just the neurodivergent kids, but the kids of the world are shouting out, but you know the answer. What's the point? It's interesting too, because it's sort of like having compassion for each other because like relating back to that story um, with my mum, and I, I've got her permission to talk about this and, you know, <laughs> and all of this. Um, But sometimes if you're having an interaction, even within neurodivergence, like an autistic person communicating with an ADHDR, sometimes it can get frustrating because the ADHDR might ask something um, like what time, you know, is the lunch today Um, or where are we going? And you may have already said that like five times But for them, their working memory hasn't been able to take that in or they kind of need that answer again. I think even if it's a neurotypical person communicating with an ADHD, sometimes like that can get a little frustrating. But it's about having compassion on both sides 
and just, yeah, understanding that you're trying to build a relationship and maintain a relationship. And maybe it's good for the ADHD to know that asking a question where there's already been an answer and having to do that like repeatedly is really draining for an autistic person that has limited spoons to be verbal. Or, or even a neurotypical person. Monique, have, were you in my house this week? <laughs> um, no, yeah. but I think I think that's a really good point. And we've talked a lot today about autistic communication and how that's different from neurotypical. Um, I'd love, before we move on to the next question, Adina, just to hear your take a little bit on ADHD communication, because I think something that's really helpful for ADHD is, and which I often recommend that kids do as a helpful strategy for them is what's called verbal mediation. And that's talking through your problem-solving strategy. And that's really helpful for working memory. It's helpful for attentional focus. It kind of keeps you on track, you know, when your thoughts want to run away with you. So yeah, a lot of that kind of talking out loud and similarly to the friction between say an autistic communication style and neurotypical. And I'm thinking about like in school, particularly here, often, even though that's a really great strategy for our ADHD kids, they often get in trouble for talking their problem-solving strategy out loud in, in class. And as we were chatting about, Monique, it can sometimes be a friction point between, you know, other neurotypes constantly asking, constantly talking for the sake of keeping things kind of in their head. Yes. Speaking hypothetically, of course, not that I am speaking about any uh, lived experience right here. <laughs> <laughs> I am like laughing so, so much. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I think, Monique, I think you know exactly what I'm doing. I really do. Like, I, I'm sorry. I kind of feel like I'm throwing my mom on the bus here, but like, we'd be packing our bags and my mom would be like, I'm just going to put these two socks together and then I'm going to like put them here. And then, oh, these pants are nice. And like, oh, I'm going to roll these up and put them here in the, the luggage. And I really wish at that point I'd known that I was autistic and I had my I had noise cancelling headphones because I didn't at that point. So, you know, it's a, again, I think definitely knowing each other's neurotypes and also now knowing that that is actually a really helpful strategy for my mum and like for her to self-manage like her ADHD. Knowing the why gives me so much more space to have compassion that and be like, okay, cool. Like that's a strategy that she actually really needs. All good. I'm going to give myself a strategy that I really need right now by putting my noise cancelling headphones on and watching RuPaul's Drag Race. Like <laughs> <sighs> That's awesome. And I think that is so, yes, yeah, so, so relatable, Monique. And I love the term you're using around compassion. That is so important to assume the best intentions of someone else so that you know your mum is not doing that verbal chatter to annoy you <laughs> you know it's not for the purpose of annoying you it's for the purpose of helping her out and so assuming her positive intention can always be a great starting point kind of absolutely absolutely so there's two main pieces that I love to think about for ADHD communication. And one is, and I relate heavily to both of these aspects, uh, I shed a little bit of light about interrupting before. So a lot of ADHDs can do a lot of interrupting because we get this thought, we get this moment, we get this idea. We just want to blurt it out, which has a real negative connotation, but I think that could be a positive. 
if the people around are understanding and in many but not all situations. Uh, blurting it out is about sharing an idea and excitement and we need to start by recognizing why, as you've spoken about, where that comes from. And it comes from this big dopamine rush of like, I have a thing to say, I have an idea. And it comes alongside a, for me anyway, a fear of forgetting that idea or of losing it. Then I have this autistic flavor of like, but when is the right time for me to join in? And how am I going to be judged and all the other stuff too? But we'll go ADHD focus for a moment. Um, I'm holding up post-it notes, which are life-changing for me. And it's something I've used with a lot of ADHD clients. Um, Michelle, you talked about supporting ADHDs to talk themselves through problem solving and thinking something. I happen to be a very visual person. And as we've talked about, sometimes the talking aloud doesn't really fit the scenario or can be triggering for teachers, for example, or other kids around a child in a school setting. So post-it notes can be a super powerful weapon for jotting down or drawing out your idea or even a letter that will trigger you to remember your idea. So you hold on to it, you're physically holding on to it until later and it's not gone. Um, so even as we're talking through this discussion, I'm taking some notes, adding to the notes I've already gone going, I want to respond to that thing because I don't trust my brain to retain anything because I'm going to be on to the next shiny idea. So supporting really explicit teaching of note-taking skills in whatever way suits that child's or person's communication and uh, thinking style, learning style is really, really helpful. The other thing I want to remind everyone again is to not just be trying to change the child to fit other communication styles that seem more easy or palatable, but make sure we're understanding why a child or person has a particular communication style or preference and honour it wherever possible and accommodate that and even sometimes celebrate them for their, their quirks. And I use that in a positive sense. And I think it's very easy as therapists to get stuck into this idea of I work with the child, so I'm just going to teach the child stuff. But we all have to think so much more creatively about how else are we going to communicate or help that child communicate their message about their conversation needs, their communication needs, or all their other needs <laughs> to their teacher. How can we share that message with a teacher? Is it helping come up with a cheat sheet that you do with the client, with the child, and send that to the teacher and have a meeting with the teacher where you explain it further and advocate for the child more. There's so many ways it could look, but I really want people to be creative about supporting around the child. Oftentimes in these settings um, or these situations, parents or teachers can feel like, oh, but we're we just going to let this kid, you know, they never have to think about their actions or behaviors and they always, you know, just do whatever they feel. And the answer is, of course, no, because we all have to learn how to exist within a community. But the issue is that neurodivergent kids are often told that everything they're doing is wrong. Everything I do is wrong. And then we get this sense of, depression almost and learned helplessness that comes from this deep sense of shame, which is, well, I'm just going to fuck it up anyway. So why even try? But if we're coming from the place of, no, no, how you communicate is totally valid, but just like every other human being on the planet, regardless of neurotype, sometimes we have to think about the impact of our behaviors on other people and you know what's happening around us. But that's not coming from a place of you are defective and you need to learn to be different to how your brain is naturally set up. And you know, so far, Adina, we've been chatting a lot about learning skills when we we don't feel shameful about ourselves. 
neurodivergence and speech therapy and speech and language kind of generally. Um, you are, of course, a neurodivergent speech therapist. So we'd like to change the focus a little bit of the interview today more to you and your experiences in particular. We always like to ask our guests, what does neurodivergence actually mean to you? I thought really, really hard about this question and there's probably a thousand ways to jump at it, jump at it. Um, for me personally, it's been about finding myself, clarifying myself and understanding myself in the context of particular neurotypes and being a lot more forgiving of myself, so like accepting who I am rather than trying to push against it to look more normal, inverted commas are there. Yeah, it's just been a really interesting, enlightening process for me. I have so much fun throughout all of this self-discovery piece. There's challenging moments for sure, but being neurodivergent is just... It just helps me understand why I'm a bit odd and quirky and I've never followed the path as laid out or as expected. It just makes so much sense. <laughs> um, and in terms of how I relate to other neurodivergent people and community, to me, neurodivergence is just about recognizing that there are many types of brains and there are many positives and challenges that come with having a sparkly different brain. And I love, I'm such an optimist. I love focusing on the positives and the, the, connections that can be built in the community when you sort of can find your people and you know what that looks like. Um, technology and online spaces is a beautiful way to do this. And just, I just want to change the world, <laughs> challenge the status quo a little bit, bust some stereotypes. It's, it's, it's a process, but a really important one. I love the focus there on community. And it's interesting. The reason we love asking that question to all our guests is we always get such a different answer. Um, and it's so fascinating to hear how different people conceptualize neurodivergence and, and what it kind of means to different people. So thanks for sharing that with us. So tell us, what's it like being a neurodivergent speech therapist? I have to say it's another version of community for me. So I'm finding more and more neurodivergent speeches are connecting with me, the louder I am out there in the world. And I'm, a lot of people who aren't out, a lot of people who are discovering themselves, they think they might be autistic, they might be an ADHD. -er, and I mean, in my experience, they're probably right once the, they get to the point of really thinking about that. Uh, so it's been a really amazing version of a smaller community of being part of and supporting neurodivergent speeches, which is, oh, it's it's important. Uh, I've been taking part in a lot of advocacy, trying to shift the practices of Speech Pathology Australia. They're getting there. It's, it's interesting. It's been a really interesting process. It's a very exciting time to be in this position doing advocacy, doing teaching and training for a lot of people in yeah in 2023 i think there's this rising tide of of change and clarifying my own self and identity within that has been incredibly helpful for me figuring out my direction and also i've got this new view on how i have connected actually monique you touched on this earlier but how i've connected and understood neurodivergent clients that i've worked with on such a deep level in many cases i'm not saying i get everyone who's neurodivergent we're not all the same, surprise, surprise, but it's been a really 
interesting process for me to understand why I have connected so well with so many and often interpret the beliefs, the wants, the actions, the preferences of neurodivergent kids for their parents and for their therapists in many cases. Um, yeah, it's, it's really empowering to be a bit of a voice, a bit of a help. I guess I'm sort of crossing from the inside and the outside of these two worlds. It's it's fun. <laughs> I just have fun with it. We'd love to hear about your path to understanding your own neurodivergence and, and when you actually kind of realised you were neurodivergent. And part of that too being, you know, how does your neurodivergence affect the different areas of your life? We've heard a bit about work and, and career and, and that type of thing. I'd love to hear sort of more generally about, yeah, how you found yourself here and your kind of awareness of your own neurodivergent brain. I was a bit of a slow realizer. I'm sure there's a better term for that. So I've been a speechy for about 11 years, over 11 years now. And from the very beginning of my career, worked with a lot of autistic kids and a mix of kids, but predominantly autistic kids throughout my whole career. And as I said before, I, I just got them. I just found myself getting these kids and kind of interpreting their experiences to their parents, but forgetting to notice that I was more like them than like the majority of other people. I didn't have that perspective. So I would say things like, I mean, don't we all get angry when a garbage truck drives down the road? Like you get it, right? And then I'd have parents who may be autistic and diagnosed or not, and they'd be nodding along going, yeah, 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 I get that. Um, and then sometimes I'd get neurotypical parents who were looking at me like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> So it's kind of hilarious to me how slow I was to notice my own experiences in the context of my world and, and what that meant for my own neurotype. Um, but a really pivotal point was in our lockdown that we had in Sydney in, I think, is it 2021, July 2021? I've kind of lost track of the years by now. Uh, I had a team. I had an office. It was that sort of traditional speech therapy practice that you might imagine. And I was in massive burnout. I had a baby who was, at that point, she was just one. And about, a year, yeah, two years ago now, so it was about 10 weeks earlier, I'd come to the decision to actually close the team, pivot my business, change everything for a number of reasons. And one of them was that working with a team and managing a team was not aligned with my needs and my personal preferences. But I didn't have a label for what that meant or, or exactly why. I just knew it wasn't working for me uh, and it, I wasn't the best manager I could be for them. So for a number of reasons, we slowly closed up the business and I think it was three days before the lockdown started, uh, the last team members had finished their roles and had transitioned on to other things. And then I had four months of this office space that I knew I was locked into the lease for four more months. I had four rooms all to myself for I think three or four days a week. I was going there while my mum was with my daughter. And I had the most amazing time. And I know it doesn't sound great to say that lockdown was great and fun and amazing, but here's the context is I was an unidentified autistic person having come through months of burnout and holding it together for other people emotionally, financially, energetically. And I had this literal space, four rooms just for myself. I could do whatever I wanted. I could do creative work. I had quiet. I controlled my environment. It was actually, it was blissful. 
which feels really naughty to say. And I know there was a lot of hard stuff going on in the world at that time. But yeah, I had to step back and analyze why I was just enjoying my life so much in that mode. And now I recognize it really fit my sensory needs, my social preferences. Uh, My little ADHD side of my brain could go off on tangents, trying new projects and starting up new things. It was just utterly joyful because it was a fit for what I needed. So that was kind of the start of my process of thinking, why is this really what I need? Um, and another really big pivotal moment was the Yellow Ladybugs conference in last year, in 2022. So not even a year ago from when we're recording this. I was already thinking about my brain. I was already thinking maybe I'm autistic, but getting a lot of imposter syndrome around this, a lot of, oh, I can't be because, I mean, that comes down to masking like a champion through life. Um But I saw myself in so many of the speakers who have now become amazing friends in the online space, but we're friends. Um, Often autistic, often female, often professionals who spoke at the conference. And I just went, this is one way or, you know, tens of ways that autism can look and ADHD too, but I hadn't even considered that at the time, which is its own hilarious. um, I just missed the mark on that one, but there it is. It's pretty obvious now. So that was an incredibly affirming process for me where I just decided then, yeah, I do want to actually seek identification slash diagnosis. Um, And that led me to meeting a fantastic psychologist who I see via telehealth. And he's been, that's another joyful element of it for me. It's just been fun. I love self-discovery. I love self-improvement. And I know now I can't improve myself if I don't know myself. So I, yeah, I've just been having a really fascinating time understanding my brain and, and how my brain fits my life and my world and my community. Yeah, I just love that that story. And I, I do think like with the lockdowns and COVID and everything, it is interesting to hear how a lot of people came through that process of self-discovery. And, you know, I wonder if it is partly because being at home or being in a different environment, like being forced into a different environment, a different way of living and working. Yeah. Like if that gave people like the space to be able to sit with themselves or look at like, what's the difference, you know, for me. And and for some people it would have been like, oh, I miss that open, open office and like all the hustle and bustle and, you know, but for you, it was a different experience. And yeah, I just I just love hearing people's stories of self-discovery. I, I think that's so, I, I don't know, I just love it. I love hearing all the different paths people take to discovering their neurodivergence and their identity. Mm, so thanks for sharing. So, Adina, tell us about what strengths and challenges has neurodivergence given you and what are your top tips for others? So, look, for me, my autistic ADHD brain, I think, is a really big part of who I am and my personality. It's helped me become very, well, I am very creative. Uh, I'm innovative. I challenge the status quo. I am a rebel, despite what my wonderful first boss, Nizreen, who might be listening, will tell you. (laughs) I'm like a good girl rebel because I don't like to get in trouble and I don't like to upset people, but I still have to challenge the situation that exists and check if that's the right way we should be proceeding. So I think that might be why I'm having so much fun shifting challenging notions about, you know, how support for neurodivergent people should look because 
changing perceptions and changing lives and changing mindsets. It's, it's just fun. Maybe that's a hobby for me. Um, yeah, and, and I love to stretch myself. I don't know if that's anything to do with my autistic or ADHD side, but it's just a part of me that has benefited me, I think, which is I love learning new things. I love to try new things. I love to challenge myself. The negative there, these where we get to the challenges, is I sign myself up for too much stuff. And I think we probably have my ADHD side for that is I get very excited about an idea and I'll just do it and I'll create it and then I'll be working at midnight to make it happen. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> there's a few, there's some dynamics and I think there's some real interesting ways that my, I think about it as my autistic and my ADHD side interact and there's some ways that that works well and some ways that that's tricky. And, and another big challenge is masking is something I'm amazing at. I think a lot of us might be. Uh, so, you know, hiding my true self out there in the world to look a certain way, I must have done through my whole life from being given feed, from being given feedback, uh, even covertly, subtly from people around me where I sort of look, look like a good girl, look like a quiet girl, look like the girl doing the right thing. And I've managed to chug through till age 36 before even noticing that there's something else going on and that that wasn't really me. And I'm probably going to be doing this my whole life, but untangling my own identity from my outer identity, what I've, you know, what I put on for the world is, is something, it, it's a real passion of mine to think about, but it can be quite confronting as well. So, Adina, could you tell us what would be your kind of top tip or top tips for other people who might sort of relate to your story or even for, actually, let's go more broad, even for kind of, you know, just thinking about all the speech and language stuff we've talked about. Um, if you could distill your ad advice into a couple of punchy sound bites, that would be really helpful for us. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. I think for discovering yourself and your own neurotype or your child's neurotype learning about yourself is essential like to me that's been the core of this whole process for me and if you know yourself you can understand yourself you can understand your needs you can accept your own needs you can start to untangle uh, untangle from things like internalized ableism which is where for me it shows up wondering how much help can I ask for? I've, you know, I've stumbled through life till now, just sort of looking normal-ish. So maybe I can just do it alone and keep stumbling or do I need to, or can I actually ask for help? So even questions that I ask myself about, am I disabled or not? Um, there's a huge lot of work to do there in my own little brain and in community and society as well. But wherever you're at there, I think it's just going through that process and trying to be brave to ask for what you need. And, and give yourself what you need, and that's fine. It helps your life be okay and good even. And then on the other side, I think parents looking to support kids are often, uh, at least in Australia, there's just wait lists everywhere for all kinds of therapy services. People are getting NDIS packages and thinking, I have to spend this money. And I think just being sure that a therapy provider that you're working with is aligned with your needs and are a neurodiversity affirming a, a neurodiversity affirming provider doing great neurodiversity affirming practice. Um, I actually have a checklist which helps parents sort through 
these thoughts and these ideas to really help figure out, is this provider or therapist a good match for me and what I need for my child? Um, I'll be happy to share that if you want to share the link for that with everyone. Yeah, I just tried to distill, you know, a few really important points into a one-page ticker box thing just to get parents thinking and being able to advocate for their child's needs. And so the last thing there really to sum it up is we don't just need therapy because we're autistic or ADHD is or neurodivergent. We might sometimes need to just live life and enjoy our life and might sometimes need support and remembering that sometimes that support is about changing the world around you or around your child and not just shifting skills. Adina, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. I think um, Monique and I have both had so much fun. It's been Me great. Too. Can't we go till tomorrow? No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Adina. It's been so great. Thank you so much for having me on. Yay. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us further, you can do so by subscribing to our Patreon. To become part of our Patreon community, you can buy us a coffee for $5 per month or a wine for $10 per month. All of our Patreon subscribers receive access to a backlog of exclusive content and to a monthly live Zoom hangout with us and our Patreon community. Our Zoom hangouts are a place to ask questions, chat about your experiences, and connect with other neurodivergent women. From this season onward, all Patreons will also receive basic episode transcripts released each week after our episode airs. Patreons shouting us to a monthly wine get all that plus one exclusive content post per month. We really appreciate your support as we aim to make quality mental health information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website, ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.